0: Well, if you would again uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and today we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. That there is no partiality with him. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, now for the preaching of Your Word. Uh, Give us ears to hear. Be with this, Your servant. May the Word that is proclaimed today be Your Word. May we learn and understand and give Jesus all glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The past uh, couple of years have brought the church of the United States face-to-face with issues of authority and of submission. And what the duties of the Christian has toward those who hold authority. Rarely, at least in our lifetimes, at least, has the church and the individual Christian been faced with such questions as we have been faced just the last couple of years since COVID started. Can and should employers and the government and other authorities mandate, say, wearing a mask or getting the jab, forcing churches to meet online? The line between the governing authorities protecting the common good of its people and the overreach of those governing authorities seems to have been blurred in many people's minds. When an authority asks us to do something, Where is the line between it being odious to us and it being unlawful? This is the issue facing us as a church, and likely will continue to face our nation for the foreseeable future. But with these things in mind, it's providential that we come to a text like we have today. Over the course of the past several weeks, we've been looking at these issues of authority and submission. What are the duties of the Christian towards those who have authority? What does it mean to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Now, in our study, we've seen Paul illustrated submission in the church in a number of ways, pointing to the marriage relationship, to parents and children. And now, he talks of the slave and his master. The Christian life has us interacting in a variety of aspects and on varying levels with each other in in the body. Within one relationship, for instance, I might relate to somebody in the church here as their pastor and their elder... As a fellow member and a fellow Christian, and as one who's a spiritual son, as it were, honoring those who are older than me. That's just within one relationship. And so there is an honor that we ought to show to one another out of reverence for Christ, which has reference to the several ways in which we relate to one another. Now, after having looked at marriage in the family, today we look at the relationship of slaves and masters, a relationship that, well, is sort of difficult for us to comprehend as 21st century Americans. For a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, slavery is not practiced in our social context today. At least, not in a legally sanctioned way. And secondly... We have difficulty understanding this concept, uh, as it speaks of here, of slavery because of the historic context of our country. Many of the challenges which, which exist in our nation today result from the historic practice of slavery. That is, the social background of, of uh, is the discussion of, about race and class today ha- has slavery in mind. And so when we come to a passage like Ephesians chapter 6, it is difficult to speak of slavery without images of 150 to 200 years ago in the United States. We have etched in our minds the dehumanizing and destructive practice of chattel slavery and the ramifications it has had and continues to have on our culture fighting of the Civil War and Civil Rights Movement, and even in our own day with the various riots and race-based social movements and agitations. These things are all in our minds. You can hardly think of slavery without thinking of those things. Now, these are rather complicated and convoluted issues. I'm only bringing them up not to discuss them in any kind of detail, but rather to point out that we have a hard time comprehending slavery without thinking about what was practiced in our own nation hundreds of years ago. Add that to the fact that the Bible has been used to both defend the institution of slavery and to denounce the institution of slavery. But the Bible, and in particular Ephesians 6, neither defends the institution of slavery nor does it particularly condemn it. In addition, we should bear in mind that The chattel slavery as was practiced in North America was not what was practiced in the Roman Empire though neither were particularly great systems in any case the social systems of the day are actually beside the point and that's really what I'm trying to drive at here Paul's not writing to seek some kind of change in the society that he found himself in. Paul's gospel message was not seeking to reinvent culture. When the gospel takes root in a place, it will do that anyway. No, Paul was writing to instruct the church on how they are to live under Christ's headship. That's what he's writing about. That's all we are presented with, our principles for living life under authority within whatever system we might find ourselves in. Our obligations to society, whether living under a despotic ruler, who the Bible, by the way, says is ordained by God, as a a slave under a master, or living as the master, or living as a free man who finds? Who incidentally still finds himself under some sort of authority. Paul's purpose here is to instill the duties that those who are under authority have to those who hold authority. How it is that we are to honor those who hold an office above our own. And so we begin today under the heading "Serving the Master" in verse five, where it says, "This bond servants." Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, the word here, bondservant, is the Greek word doulos, which means slave or bondman. What is in view here are those who would sell themselves in service to someone else. Now, understand, this is not simply a servant. That is to say, a free person who works for someone else, like an employee-employer relationship. That's actually not what's in view here. I mention this because an application of this can be made of an employer-employee relationship, but this is not what Paul has in mind here. What we're talking about is slavery. A person who is in bondage. Now, it is a well known historic fact that slavery prevailed throughout the Roman Empire during the Apostolic Age. Now, the New Testament, in fact, has numerous passages which refer to the institution of slavery. And slavery is dealt with in a similar fashion by Paul as he deals with a despotic state. Just as the state is not condemned or particularly praised, slavery is neither encouraged nor forbidden. It's also worth noting that Paul does not advocate for the immediate outright emancipation of the enslaved. Like his view of the state, he worked within the social structure which he found himself in. But I think this is actually particularly instructive for us. On the one hand, there are good reasons that the Christian can and should work toward having a governing authority which honors the gospel, making godly decisions. The Christian should work towards that. But this is best accomplished through evangelism, through the proclamation of the evangel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There may be better and more God-honoring systems of government, but Paul's purpose was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, even within the framework he found himself in. And Christians can function quite well under even totalitarian regimes. We see this in many nations in our own world. There are plenty of Christians in China, for instance. We pray, of course, for better systems of government for them, but they're still there. And the church is still growing. We know from history... That as the gospel spreads, as the gospel takes root in a place, the governing authorities and systems tend to change also. Now, they don't change as quickly as perhaps we would like them to, but they do change. Because the gospel impacts the world as hearts are changed. And so the issue here is not the legality or morality of slavery as an institution. Rather, what's in view here is how the Christian is to conduct themselves within such an institution. And how God is dealing with his people as we live under authority, understanding that God is our ultimate authority. This concerns our earthly existence, You and I might find ourselves in a position of authority or under authority, but as verse 9 will point out later, we'll see, there is no partiality with God. There may be, in one sense, a rank order of people, but in the end, there is no difference between the classes of people. All are equal in the eyes of God. This is particularly important to understand in the church as we enjoy fellowship across a broad spectrum of people. So as Christians, our calling is to live out the principles of godliness, resting in the fact that, that as we do, we can know that God will put an end to the work of evil men. That God himself is a final arbiter. God is the judge. He will judge wicked nations. God will judge wicked rulers. And God will judge wicked masters as well. Because the Christian has a master. The Christian has a superior who is superior to all earthly masters. And it is he who will ultimately put an end to all of tyranny. And so with all of this in mind, we can see why Paul would instruct slaves to obey their masters. Because we, we may have freedom in Christ, but this doesn't grant license to rebel. Our obedience to earthly masters, he says, should be rendered with fear and trembling. Now you might ask, what does this phrase at the end of verse 5 mean? What what do we mean by fear and trembling? Well, fear and trembling has less to do with being afraid and more to do with rendering service with reverence and honor. With a great concern for the one who is being served. This is similar to the attitude of wives toward husbands, husbands towards wives, children towards their parents. But the issue is deeper. For it's not the fear of man the apostle has in mind, rather, it's the fear of God, reverence for God. For God is our ultimate master and king. For Christians are submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so this continues to be the larger context of this passage. How we interact with one another out of reverence for Christ, who is our King and Master. Paul uses similar language this fear and trembling in Philippians chapter 2, and verse 12, where he says we're to to, uh, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, this, the idea here isn't talking about you know, shaking in our boots with fear. We're not to be intimidated by those who hold authority over us. Rather, we should show great reverence and honor with an eye to service to the Lord. Paul's point is that we are to serve others with great care, honoring them. For in serving those who are our earthly masters, we are serving ultimately the Lord. Which is why he adds, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. That's how we're to serve. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. The service rendered by the slave to his master is to be done with a single-mindedness. Now, Of course, we're talking about the Christian slave here. The Christian slave is to be single-minded. That is, with a sincere heart. The phrase in the Greek literally is a single-fold heart. Those who serve are to do so with a single-fold heart as if you were serving Christ himself. Slaves are to regard their obedience to their masters as obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the same principle Paul's been teaching all along. Our service to others, particularly those who hold the authority that we come under, is to be single-minded, with a sincere heart, serving their needs as if we were serving at the table of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are to serve to the glory of God. Our purpose, then, is not simply to be people-pleasers. Our single minded of beings is not done just to please man, as he says, as eye service. Which is to say, we're not just trying to catch uh, the authority's eye. You know, we don't do the work that we do thinking, oh, my boss is watching now, right? Now I'll work hard. But when they're not watching, well, who knows what I do? That's, that's not the idea at all. We're not just trying to impress our earthly master, as it were. You and I are to labor well, not for the sake of pleasing the eye of men, but to please the all-seeing eye of God. Because ultimately, this is who we labor for the work of your hand that you do, the service you render for others isn't so that people come to you and say, great job, pat you on the back. No, it's because you love Jesus. That's who you're serving. The actions of the Christian should be done with a desire to please God. Now you will know that Paul has given a multitude of pictures of our relationship to Christ We've we've gone over and over this. The church is the bride of Christ. We're the children of God. We are also the bond slaves of Christ. And if if we have been transformed by Christ, our heart and soul should desire to do, at all times, the will of God. Doing the will of God heartily, that is from the heart, is set in contrast to the eye service. So are you working hard with a view to the eye and the outward praise of men? Do you, do you work hard? Well, first of all, hopefully you do work hard. But if you work hard, are you doing it because you're really hoping that you have the praise of men? Hoping they see you? Hoping they praise you? Hoping they give you an boy. Or are you working with a heart of gratitude and desire to bring glory to your Savior and your King, Jesus Christ? One is doing your labor with selfish motives for the glory of yourself. The other is to give glory and honor to God. How are you serving? Our service then is to be, verse 7, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This really sums up the character of obedience which is, the Christian is called to show. We're to do this for the Lord. We're not to do this for men. Whenever it is the case that we're required to give obedience to another human being, whether as a slave to a master, as an employee uh, employee, to our employer, as children to parents, as citizens to our government, as church members to the elders, we're to do so with a good will as to the Lord. Because beyond the earthly master, beyond the earthly authority, is our heavenly master, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is who we're serving ultimately. You and I can serve an earthly master. We can even serve a wicked master with confidence in the Lord because we have faith in Him knowing that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Hebrews 11 6 tells us. And so this brings us now to our second heading, receiving from the Lord. You see, in our service, as we serve the Lord, we also need to recognize that our reward is in heaven. When the slave serves his master, or when you and I serve those who we find ourselves under, whatever good we do, we receive back from the Lord. In fact, We already know from Ephesians in our study earlier that we have been promised an inheritance and even now are being lavished with blessings from the heavenly places. You and I live in a world where there is an authority structure. In Paul's world, in the first century Roman Empire, there were slaves and then there were masters. If you were a slave... If you were a slave in those days, you might not get to do the things you wanted to do. You might experience great loss in this present life. You may never experience freedom. Not as we understand it. But the Apostle Paul gives encouragement to the slave. For they're slaves of Christ. The Christian knows something that the non Christian cannot comprehend. That there is something beyond this world. That there is a master, a great master. For the Christian, there is the hope of eternal life in Christ. And you know, whether you are slave or free, that there is an eternal inheritance which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so, this ought to encourage you. For even the slave in this world is an adopted son and heir of the promises of God in Christ. And there is no partiality with the Lord. Galatians 3.28 reminds us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, God is not impressed with our status in this world. He does not particularly honor those who hold levels of authority, nor does he think less of those who do not have uh, certain standings in this present world. What God is concerned about is your heart. And remember, he puts you in the place you are. You did not end up where you are on accident. Whatever it is that you do, you do for the Lord. And it will return to you, good or evil, for we are judged by God is our judge. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, So whether you are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment scene of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When we as followers of Jesus Christ do good to those who exercise authority over us not as people pleasers but with a sincere desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ then the good that we do will return to us as blessing. In fact, as we've already said we already have this blessing and it's beyond what we can ever hope or even imagine. Paul has already said earlier in Ephesians 2 that we are being lavished with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We are already inheritors of the kingdom in Christ. So our service, that is the good that we do, therefore, is to be out of a heart of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. In other words, we serve our earthly masters because we're thankful to the Lord for what He has done already for you. Your service ought to be done with a heart of thanksgiving for Him. And we also need to understand that this promise of blessing returning to us, this is not necessarily for this life. The slave, for instance, may experience loss his whole life. We're not talking about temporal blessings. But we, what, we do, what we are saying is this, that what we do in this world does have eternal consequences. And God is faithful to his people to bless them. And at the final judgment from Christ's hand, all men will receive according to His work in this world, whether He is bound or whether He is free. Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Regardless of your social status, regardless of the abuse which you might have endured as a servant in this world, the Christian has the hope of eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And so you and I can serve. We can serve even the most cruel, even the most wicked of masters, knowing that we have a good and glorious master who is and will bless us eternally. That ought to give you hope. For we don't we don't find ourselves like the slave, do we? If this is the hope of the slave, how much is that more true for us who are free people? Until so slaves and those who serve are to do so with a single-minded intention of giving all honor and glory to their Savior. We are to serve others not primarily to please men, but out of reverence. God. At the same time, those who hold authority are to exercise the authority with good of those under them in mind. And So this brings us now to our, our third and final heading, which is a word to masters. Masters, those who hold authority are to do good for those who are under them. Masters are to do good to their slaves just as much as a slaves to do good to, for his master. This is the purpose of all authority, to do good. All authority is for the good of those who are subject to it. Anything less than this is an abuse of authority. Masters too will fall under the judgment of Christ for their deeds. As will those who take advantage of or harm those under their care. In the church of Ephesus, there may not have been many slave owners, but there were certainly some. In fact, there were probably slaves and masters from the same household in the church of Ephesus. And so it is not only slaves who have a duty, it is not only those who are are under authority who have a duty, but masters have have, have a duty also. As slaves are to obey with hearts set on pleasing the Lord and kindness towards their earthly master, masters are to rule similarly. They're not to act toward their slaves with a regard also to the will. They're to act towards their slaves with regard to the will of God. They're not to be cruel to them. This is what Paul means when he instructs them: do the same to them. He's, again, he's speaking with general principles in mind. More, more specifically, Paul adds that they're to stop threatening. You see, leading by fear is not the way the Christian is to lead. Those who lead others are to do so with all Christian consideration. Not threats. Not berate, berating others. The Christian authority, whether it be an employer, a parent, a governing authority master of a slave is not to be a terror to those who are sub, who, who are subject to them. This would be leading in an ungodly way. as we see again the same principles we've already seen there is a right and a good way to lead others who are under your charge. And since this is principally true, how much more so in the church? For there is equality between the master and the slave in the body of Christ. In the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes this, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so there's this concept of justice and equity between the master and the slave, between members of the body. They are one in Christ. Masters are to act toward their slaves on the principles of justice and equity. Justice requires that all of their rights as men, as husbands and fathers, should be regarded. And by the way, these rights... They're not determined by civil laws. They're not determined by human laws. These rights are laws of God. Slaves are to be treated by their masters on the principles of equity. And just as was said before, the deeds of men will be judged by Christ. It's sad to think that in the church there are some who hold authority and and abuse those who are under them. It is a great sin to abuse those who are under your charge. And there will be consequences for this. James speaks of this in James chapter 5, where he says, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The person who hires others to labor for them and then does not pay them, takes advantage of them. God knows. It reaches the ears of the Lord. God sees and hears all that you and I do, and Christ will punish the master who abuses his slave just as much as the slave who in some sense abuses his master. God shows no partiality. If you are an employer, if you are a governing official, if you are a husband, if you are a parent, if you are a supervisor, if you hold any kind of authority whatsoever, be warned, if you abuse your power, you will be judged by God for it. The Christian master then is to honor those under him as Christ cares for his flock. Knowing that. That we all have the same master and the same king, and really, this is the point, isn't it? There's these varying levels of authority and submission, but in the end, we are the body of Christ. There's an equality. We are fellow Christians. God has rescued sinners of many stripes, of many backgrounds, rich, poor, slave, free. But all are in union with Christ as fellow heirs of the promise. And all are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Showing honor where honor is due. Loving one another. Serving one another with an eye towards serving Christ. What Paul has been describing here is where the rubber meets the road in life of the church. This has a direct impact on our own church, doesn't it? How we interact with one another. How we interact in our own families. How we interact in our workplaces. There are all of these levels of authority and submission. In all of these areas, we need to show mutual honor to one another, serving Christ. As we serve one another. Peter says similarly in 1 Peter chapter 2. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. But living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so as you think about these principles. These truths that we've looked at. And you consider your own life and heart in these matters. Consider these these questions. Do I honor those in authority as eye-pleasers? Or do I seek to obey for the glory of God? Do I exercise authority in an ungodly way? Do I threaten? Do I berate? Or do I seek to lead as Christ leads His people, loving them, shepherding them? Do I do good only as far as it benefits me? Or do I serve with an eye to giving honor and glory to the Lord? Do I lead others for my own benefit or for their good as a servant for the glory of God? Paul's instruction here in Ephesians chapter 6 are about how we are to live as citizens of his kingdom. But they are also how Christ relates to us. You see, we have a master who is the master of all things, he is the king. Jesus rules over us, and he has supreme authority over all things in this world. And we are his sons. We are sons of God and in another sense though, we are also bond servants of Christ. We are his slaves. We serve at his pleasure. And so we are to serve our fellow man in the same fashion. For Christ served us, didn't he? We are to serve one another as if we were serving the chief, as if we were the chief servant serving at the table of the greatest of all kings, because that's what we're doing ultimately. We have a master who does not threaten us, we have a master who does not treat us badly, we have a master who is not partial. We have a master, we have a king, the Lord Jesus Christ who does all things for our good and for His glory. So when we recognize that truth, when we recognize that all that we do in this world is for His glory, and that all that He has done for us is for our good, it frees us to serve Him, knowing that our Lord is taking care of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what are really hard, in some senses, hard truths. For as we we consider how we interact with others, perhaps we look at a passage like this, we hear a sermon like this, and we think, I've served as an eye-pleaser. I have not labored to serve Christ. I have labored to serve myself. I have led other people harshly. And so, Father, as we pray about this, we ask that You forgive us. We pray that Your Gospel would continue to change our hearts, that we understand how, what Christ has done for us, that we would live as people, grateful people before You and toward one another. Help us to live in light of what You have done for us. As it were, the living out the imperatives in light of the indicatives, in light of Your work at the cross, that You have forgiven us as sinners, you have restored us and renewed us, that we are united to Christ, and so we pray that our labors would be to your glory and honor, that we would honor one another in reverence to Christ Jesus, our King, our Master, our Lord. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.